Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. I mentioned last week, Revelation 4 and 5 are the two most important chapters in the book because they provide the lens through which we see the rest. So starting in chapter 6, things can get a little bit confusing and disturbing, and it's important for us to remember chapter 4 and 5 as our kind of our touchstones. And again, they're the lens through which we see all of the events in chapter 6 and following. So John has this vision of the throne room of God, and the first thing he sees is the throne, and the Father is seated on the throne. And we said that is symbolic of God's sovereignty. The, the image of the throne occurs, I think, 40 times in Revelation, and it, it, it reminds us that the things that are happening are happening because God is working His purposes out on the earth, that He's in control of the events as they play out throughout the rest of the book. Today in chapter 5, we'll see Jesus come on the scene in this throne room and how everybody responds to Him. So remember, in the throne room, we've got the Father on the throne. These are people that we've seen so far. Four living creatures that look pretty weird. Six wings, eyes all over the place. One has a face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the um, face of an eagle. And then these 24 elders who are also around the throne. And now Jesus enters into this scene, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. We'll pause there. So the Father has a scroll in his right hand, writing on both sides, so nothing can be added to it. It's final. It's complete. And then it's sealed with seven seals, seven the number of completeness. So if I wrote you a letter in this day, I would put my seal on it. And when you got it, if that seal wasn't broken, then you would know, hey, nobody's read it. And the, the scroll with seven seals says all of those things. No one's read this. It's a secret. The contents are a mystery. We won't see, them un, um, we won't see it unveiled for several chapters. Uh, th- and we can also trust that what's written on the scroll is actually from the Father. It's the things that he wrote. Again, no, nobody's added to it. Nobody's taken anything away from it. And nobody's seen what's in it. So Somehow, John, even though he doesn't know what's in the scroll, he senses that it's important. An angel says, who's worthy to open this scroll? And nobody's worthy. And John gets really upset and he starts to cry. And then one of these elders, these 24 elders, says to him, don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's triumphed. And he's worthy. And he is worthy. Those are two messianic prophecies. So back in Genesis 49, Jacob is saying a word of blessing over each of his 12 sons before he dies. Uh, to Judah, his third son, he says, you're a lion's cub. And the scepter will not depart from you. So the Jews really quickly grabbed onto that and said, the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to come from that tribe. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah. In Isaiah 11, Isaiah has a prophecy about this ideal king, this king who would rule Israel perfectly. And he says he would be a shoot from Jesse. Jesse was David's dad. So he would be someone from the family of David. And again, the Jewish leaders really quickly quickly grabbed onto that and said, the Messiah, he's not just going to be from the tribe of Judah, he's going to be from the family of David. 
Matthew's genealogy, something I know you've all memorized. It's got, if you read through it, it says Jesus came. He came from the tribe of Judah, and he came from the family of David. He ticks both of those boxes. So you can imagine, you're John. You see this scroll in the hand of the Father. Everybody's bowing down, worshiping the Father. Imagine the scene. You know, nobody, the, the angel says, who can open the scroll? Nobody. You're really upset. This elder comes and puts his, his arm around your shoulders and says, don't worry, the lion can do it. So what are you picturing? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David. David was a king. He was a warrior. So what are, who are you picturing is coming out to grab this scroll? Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when the lamb had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons for every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So whatever John was looking for, it wasn't this. He sees a lamb and not like a cute little lamb, a lamb whose throat's been slit, blood all over him. Looks like he's been slaughtered. He's got seven horns, which stands for uh, his, his power. He's all-powerful, seven number of completeness, horn a symbol of power. He's all-wise or all-knowing, eyes a symbol for wisdom or knowledge, and seven the number of completeness, and those seven eyes also represent the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit of God connected to Jesus. And he comes and he takes this scroll. So this was, again, this was not anything that kind of leading up to Jesus' life and death and resurrection, this was not what the Jews were looking for. They were looking for the lion from the tribe of Judah. They were looking for the root of Jesse. They were not looking for a lamb who would be slain. Exodus 12, the last night of the Israelites' time in, the, in uh, Egyptian captivity. God says to Moses, listen, I'm sending an angel of death through this whole land tonight. The firstborn son from every family is going to die unless you kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. Then, the lamb, then that angel of death will pass over your house and your oldest son doesn't have to die. So all of the Israelites did that. None of the Egyptians did. They were not aware of that. The angel of death comes through, passes over the house of all the Israelites and kills the firstborn son of all the Egyptians. Jesus is our Passover lamb. First Peter 1 tells us that. He's our Passover lamb. He died in our place. The angel of death passes us over because he died in our place. Isaiah 53, suffering servant. It's a great chapter. Suffering servant passage where we see this, this one, this suffering servant. And the Jews, again, they weren't thinking this would be the Messiah because it doesn't sound like a lion. And it doesn't sound like a king. And it doesn't sound like a victorious 
warrior, one who's a, like a, a sheep led to the slaughter and doesn't open his mouth. But if you read Isaiah 53, you see all of these benefits that are ours because of the death of this suffering servant. He bore our pain. He takes our sin. The punishment that, brought, that brings us peace or right relationship with God was on him. By his wounds, we're healed. All of that's Isaiah 53. That's, that's a picture of Jesus. He was a Passover lamb. He died in our place. He's this suffering servant. Acts 8 says that. He's this one, again, who died in our place and made it possible for us to be made right with God. And that's who Jesus, excuse me, that's who John sees. And this lamb goes up to the Father and is given this scroll. And then this whole new round of worship breaks out. The four living creatures and the 24 elders have been worshiping the Father. And now Jesus is on the scene. And they begin to direct their attention towards him. These elders, they have a harp in one hand that symbols, symbolizes worship. And they have this golden bowl in the other. And John says that's the prayers of the saints. Revelation eleven fifteen to me, is a, it's a summary of the scroll. We'll see this uh, again when we get farther into the book. But what's on this scroll? I think it's God's plan for establishing his kingdom on the earth. That's what he's always wanted to do. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, that was God's original plan, was to rule earth as heaven. Genesis 3, sin entered the world, everything went sideways, and God has been working to restore and to establish his kingdom on the earth since then. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That was his core message. Now, I think Revelation is God finally and fully doing that. Revelation eleven fifteen says, the kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, our Lord and the Lamb. And they're going to reign forever and ever. So what we're going to read starting in chapter 6 is how God does that. What does it look like for him to establish his kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven? And it looks like judging all of those who oppose him and redeeming all of his own people. It's judgment and salvation. Both of those things played out through the rest of the book of Revelation. Jesus says in Matthew 6, the disciples say, teach us to pray. And he says, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every time you pray for yourself or you pray for somebody, you're praying some version of that prayer. When you pray for someone who's sick to be well, you're praying your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven because there's no sickness in heaven. If somebody's hurting in some way and you pray for them to be comforted, you're praying, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven because in heaven, there's going to not be any more tears. There's no more mourning. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. When you pray for righteousness, for joy, for peace, any version of that, that's what you're praying. God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Those prayers have been being prayed for thousands of years all around the world. And for some of you, we all, at some point, I think, honestly, we all feel this way. We feel like ours aren't being heard. We prayed for something, and it didn't happen. And we feel maybe our prayer wasn't good enough. It was neglected. It was overlooked. It was ignored. And that can, it can sting, and it can cause us to pull back a little bit when it comes to believing God and trusting God and asking him to work because we say, well, he didn't do it this time. Revelation 5 is a picture of where all of those prayers are being collected. None of them are lost. None of them are ignored. 
None of them are forgotten. They're all being collected in these golden bowls by these 24 elders. And at just the right time, the Kairos moment, every one of them is going to be answered. And we'll see what that answer looks like next week, starting in chapter 6. Every one of those prayers is answered. So you, I want you to take comfort and encouragement, maybe even a challenge to continue to pray. We believe God acts now 100% and that we can taste some of his kingdom, some of his rule and reign now. we, We do believe that. Jesus began that work through his death and resurrection, but his, his kingdom, his rule and reign won't be fully and finally established until he returns again, Revelation 21. We're not there yet. But in the interim, again, I, I don't want you to get discouraged. I don't want you to feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling or somehow God is ignoring you. He's not. He's collecting all of those prayers that you pray. And again, at just the right time, he's going to answer. And then uh, we see, again, Jesus takes a scroll. We see these these um, elders with the harp and the bowl. And then we see that they, they are, are here, I guess. They're singing a new song. How come a new song? Because Jesus has done something new. He's established a new covenant. Covenant is the terms of a relationship. So God in the Old Testament said, here's what it looks like to relate to me. He told Moses on Mount Sinai, here's what it looks like. The Ten Commandments, y'all know, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. Here's what it looks like to relate to me. It looks like keeping these laws. It looks like offering animal sacrifices on a regular basis, coming to the tent of meeting or coming to the temple in Jerusalem once it was built. It looks like only Jews. That's what the old covenant looks like. And if anybody else wants to be in a relationship with God, they got to become a Jew first. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, a new covenant was established. There's not 613 laws. There's two. Love God and love people. Four words. That's all you need to know. That's what God expects of you, to love God and to love people. It's not endless animal sacrifices month after month, year after year. Nobody's having to cart themselves to Jerusalem. It's a once and for all sacrifice. Jesus, the lamb who was slain in our place. It's not just for Jews. We see Jesus has purchased a people for himself from every language and nation and people and tribe all over the world. Everyone now has access to the Father through Jesus. We don't have to become Jews anymore. Why missions? With Mission Sunday, some people say, why do we do that? Why do we spend that money? Why do we go through that effort to send people to other parts of the world? This is why. Because Jesus has purchased for himself. That's a, that word ransomed or purchased comes from the commercial slave trade. It means to set someone free, to emancipate someone. Jesus has done that. He set people free from sin and Satan and death. Everyone everywhere, I would say everyone has been set free. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't know, and they need somebody to tell them. Uh, Every June here on the square, the NAACP hosts this event. It's called Juneteenth. And for some of us, we don't don't know what that is, not necessarily part of our heritage. And we're kind of, what, what is that? It's actually, it celebrates June 19th, 1865, when slaves in Texas were told, you're free. They'd actually been set free two and a half years before, January 1st, 1863, when Abraham, when the Emancipation Proclamation was put into law. But they didn't know. Nobody told them. Union officer came in June, on June 18th, 1865, and then June 19th is the day that's celebrated, when they knew, hey, we've been set free. And that, unfortunately, is the state of billions of people around the world. They've been set free from sin and Satan and death but they don't know it. 
because nobody's told them. And we have the privilege and the responsibility to do that, to let people who've been set free know you don't have to be a slave anymore. That's why missions. So anyway, so we have this picture and this, this new song that's being sung. And then we see this, again, this worship of the lamb. We have the, the, these elders who are falling down before him. We see these living creatures who began worship in chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And now they're agreeing with what these elders are saying. They say, amen, so be it. So those two chapters, 4 and 5, this idea of the father on the throne. He is sovereign over the events of history and the lamb with the scroll in his hand. He is the only one who's worthy to reveal the contents of this scroll. He's the only one who's worthy to execute God's plan for the earth. Those two pictures we need to hold in our minds as we read forward in Revelation. The father on the throne, the lamb with the scroll. So for us, kind of thinking through, well, what about for now? What does that mean for us today before we look through the rest of Revelation? That picture of lion and lamb, that paradox, really, really important for us. It's at the heart of, what, of the gospel. It's the heart of our faith. And honestly, it's the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Revelation 5, 5, we see that the lamb was uh, worthy because he conquered. Because he conquered. The lion, excuse me, was worthy because he conquered. And then in verse 6, we see that he conquered by dying. That idea is central to what it means through death, victory, through sacrifice. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, you've got to take up your cross daily and you've got to follow me. In Revelation 2 and 3, every church that Jesus addresses, he says to them, to those of you who overcome, And then he gives them a promise. There's a different promise in each one of those letters. We won't go back through them. But it's the same word. To you who overcome. Your Bible may say to you who are victorious or to you who triumph. It's the same word that's used of him in chapter 5. But Jesus never tells us how to overcome. He doesn't tell the church in Ephesus or Laodicea or Smyrna. He doesn't tell them what to do. He just says to those of you who overcome, here's what I'm going to give you. Here's what I'm going to do for you. But he doesn't tell them how to do it. And then in chapter 5, we see, oh, this is how it's done. He overcomes, he conquers, he triumphs through death. And that sets the pattern for us. Again, that's why he can say to us, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. It's what he did. Every victory that you achieve in the Christian life, you will achieve through death. That's the only way to win as a follower of Jesus is to die. It can be a a difficult concept for us. What does it mean to die to ourselves? What does it mean to take up our cross daily? I like the word surrender. It's a little bit easier for me to get my my mind around. What does it mean for me on a daily basis to surrender? That's a bit easier for me to grasp than what does it mean to take up my cross on a day? It's the same concept. Again, it's just to me, it's a picture that's a little bit easier to grab onto. And that's where I want to challenge and encourage each one of us today. This idea of the lion and the lamb, we see a picture there. This is how Jesus won. He won through dying. He won by giving himself up, giving up his own life. And that's the path, that's the trail that he marked out for us. And every victory that you achieve as a Christian, you will achieve through death. First his death, 
His death that brings benefits to us, makes us right with God. His death forgives us of our sins. His death heals us of our diseases. His death opens us up to receive the Holy Spirit who gives us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. His death gives us grace to obey. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and moves us to obey. So we don't even have to work up the ability to obey on our own. We can rely on him for that. All of that comes to us because of his death. But secondarily, we have to die as well. And again, that idea of surrender may be a more helpful picture. Y'all have seen this illustration before. Your life is like a set of keys, right? You've seen this. And each key represents some part of your life that's important to you. Your family your job or your school, your finances, your health, your future. Um, It can also represent some things that maybe you don't love about yourself, areas where you struggle and where you've sinned, your sense of identity, your reputation. All of those things are represented by one of these keys. And when you become a Christian, what you're doing is you're giving God the keys. That's That's what you're doing. You're surrendering your life. Here, you get it all. That's what it means to say Jesus is the Lord. You're the king of all of this stuff. The issue for most of us is we're happy giving him some of our keys, maybe even most of our keys, but not all of them. I'm happy to give him my sin 100%. I don't want anything to do with it. I'll give him my guilt. Most of us are happy to give him our our, uh, our future in terms of our eternal future. We're not really interested in hell. And so we're happy to say, Jesus, you can work that out for me. I would rather be with you. Some of us are willing to give him our health, maybe. Maybe you've struggled. You're like, I'm not getting any help anywhere else. God, I'm willing to submit my health to you. We're, We're willing to give him some, maybe even most. But for a lot of us, there's one or two things that we hang on to. There's one or two things that we just don't trust him with. They're so precious to us, so important to us, maybe something that we're so ashamed of for a few of us. We're just not willing. We're not willing. It's a key that we're not willing to give him. For us to surrender, to die to ourselves, it's a recognition that he gets all of it. I can't hold on to any of it. Because if I hold on to any of it, in a sense, I'm holding on to all. Because my life is an integrated whole. Don't hear that as condemnation, but a recognition. He's looking for complete and total surrender from us. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Those are all-encompassing, all-inclusive words. He wants everything, and that can be a scary thing to consider. And that's why it's so important for us to remember, who's the one who sits on the throne? Your father, your father. Not some distant, far-off God, your father. Remember that picture wrapped in a rainbow reminds us of the covenant that he made with Noah. Your father who's merciful, he's the one who sits on the throne. He's the one who's sovereign not just over the affairs of the earth, but he's in control of the events in your life as well. And he so loved you that he gave his son. That's the one who's saying, give me the keys. Jesus, the lamb, the lion, the one who holds the scroll, the only one who's worthy to execute God's judgments on the earth. He's the one. He's saying, give me the keys. And again, if if he can handle all of history... Surely he can handle whatever this thing is in your life. The Bible says, well, 
He showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. The Father loves you. The Son loves you. And he's asking for all of the keys. But for many of us, again, that's difficult. I want to encourage you this morning. What does it look like for you to give all of the keys, to completely surrender to Jesus? Blanket prayers are great. God, I surrender my life to you. I give you all that I am and all that I have. Surrendering everything. There's something to me about surrendering each thing. Not just kind of a general blanket prayer, but very specifically. I don't know about you. I don't know how you carry stress. Everybody carries it differently. Some people can't sleep. Some people, they can't eat. Their stomachs are upset. For me, I feel it like I, I, I do this with my shoulders. I feel it right here in my shoulders. And if I feel that, that's a physical reminder to me. Hey, I'm probably carrying something that I don't need to carry. And if I'm sensitive in the moment, I'll take a minute and say, okay, God, what, what is it? What is it? Which, which key have I grabbed back from you? Which area of my life have I decided I'm responsible for? I don't know how you deal with or how you experience stress. Some of you get grouchy and edgy. Some of you just kind of move into denial and you kind of just lay around on the couch and hope everything kind of goes away. However you're responding, I would say use that, recognize that, like identify that. And, if, and I would encourage you even within your home, not in a like throw darts at each other way, but in a way of helping each other. If you know, if you know how, your, uh, how it lands on your spouse or how it lands on your kids or how it lands on your parents, I think it's a great thing to point out. Again, not in a told you so, gotcha kind of way, but in a helpful way. You seem stressed out. And hopefully that can be a cue for us to take a minute and step back and say, God, what have I, what have I taken that wasn't mine? What, have I, what am I trying to take back from you? Which of these keys that I surrendered to you am I trying to pull back out of your hand? I mean, one of the, one of the, the blessings of saying God is sovereign is he, that means he sustains all things, and we don't have to. Colossians 1, Jesus holds all things together, so we don't have to, but we're all tempted to grab onto those, to kind of take back control again, especially in those one or two areas that are really, really important to us are those one or two areas where we feel like we've been disappointed in the past. Strong temptation. I would encourage you when you feel that, again, for me, it's my shoulders. And if I'll just be sensitive in the moment, I can recognize, hey, this is what's going on. And I can pray, and I would encourage you to do the same out loud, not just in your mind. God, I surrender this to you. Not easy for me, but I'm going to surrender this to you. Some of you, you need to surrender the right to be right. That's what you need to surrender you're all worked up all the time because you've got to be right and you need everybody to know you're right. If you would die to that, if you would surrender the need to be right, things would go well with you. Some of you need to surrender this desire to see other people get what they deserve. If you would just surrender that, you'd experience a much greater level of peace. If you would be willing to say, God, you're the one who dispenses justice and so you do that, that's not my job. And that's hard when you want them to get justice and you think they're stupid at the same time. And those, it's hard to care all of that. You experience a greater level of peace in your heart. And so I would encourage you, again, if you're, 
If you're feeling that, that edginess, again, if you're having trouble sleeping, see those things as physical reminders or physical signs, conviction, if you want to see that. The Holy Spirit trying to get you to see, hey, you're not living a surrendered life. And, there's an, and don't think, well, I, I surrendered that. It doesn't matter. There's, again, this ongoing temptation to grab things back. In our world, we we value and we promote and we praise and we reward competence and responsibility. And there's nothing wrong with either of those things. But if you're competent and if you're responsible, the other side of that is you can tend to grab things back from the Lord because you probably can handle it at least for a little bit and to some degree. And that's where it creates that tension for us. If we're not regularly saying to the Lord, I'm surrendering this to you. This is yours. I want us to close. I want to make sure we have enough time to get up the road for small groups. So if you'd close your eyes, I'm going to pray a prayer and lead you through a time of prayer. And then I'm going to give you a chance to respond for ministry. And I want you to come forward. I really do. There's something about confessing out loud that's powerful. So I want you to take seriously what we're doing in your heart. But I don't want that to preclude you from coming forward and receiving ministry. Uh, Before we say this prayer, let me just say this about small groups. You don't have to be in a Stonebridge small group. Like, that's okay. What you do have to be is in life-giving relationships. You got to do that, or you're not going to make it for long following Jesus. We're just, we're not intended to live any life on our own, and we're not intended to live the Christian life on our own. And so if you don't have people in your life who love you and love God with whom you're intentionally vulnerable, people who know what's going on with you, who you allow to speak into your life, then you need to find that. And small groups are a great place to do that. That can seem pretty scary. For some of you, the idea of walking up the steps, and I know that can be intimidating, but I want to encourage you to press through all of that for the sake of your own spiritual health and growth. And because, as Matt said, there are things in you that other people need. That's part of what it is to live life together uh, as body, as community, as family. It's not just about what are you receiving. It's also about what you're giving, recognizing that there's things in you that others need. So that's my, there's my small group plugging. You don't have to be in one here at Stonebridge, but that you have to have those relationships, those regular relationships in your life, or you're really not going to go very far with Jesus. Right now, I want to pivot back, and I want you to just ask the Lord this simple question. God, is there an area of my life that I've failed to surrender to you? It's that simple. And I would imagine every one of us had some sense of conviction there. And so then, if you're willing, then the next step is to acknowledge that before the Lord and to surrender, to take back control in fill in the blank area of my life. I want things to run the way I want them to run. If I'm honest in that situation, I want my, to, my will to be done. I'm not really interested in your will. God, I want to confess that. I pray that you'd forgive me. 
I want to surrender that area of my life to you. If you're willing to pray that, you may not be yet. So you can just pause right there. God, I want to surrender this area of my life to you. I want to trust you. That you're the one that sits on the throne in that area of my life. Jesus, that you're the only one who's worthy to move that area of my life forward. And I pray that you give me grace to trust you moving forward. You may not be willing to pray that prayer, and what you may want to pray is, God, I recognize this is an area of my life where I'm exercising control, where I'm holding on to that key. But to be honest, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not ready today to surrender that to you, but I, I would like you to make me ready. I'm not willing, but you can. would you move me to willingness? Would you move me to a place where I'm willing to surrender, where I can trust you enough with this thing that's so important to me? And that's a legitimate prayer. And if you mean it, God will answer it. 1 Peter uh, 5 says that God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So what you're doing when you're surrendering, you're humbling yourself before the Lord. You're acknowledging your need for him and you're acknowledging his lordship in every area of your life. And what that does is it then frees you up to receive his grace. Again, if, if in that picture, if Matt is holding all of my keys, then my hands are empty. And, I, and they're empty, it means they can receive. There's, there's room there to receive what God would want to give me. And so as you surrender, you can follow that prayer up by saying, now God, that my hands are empty, I want to receive every good gift that you want to give to me. Chiefly, I want to receive your Holy Spirit. And would you fill me this morning? I want to experience greater levels of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control in my life. I want to experience greater levels of freedom in my life. I want to experience greater levels of power in my life. I want to know what it is to be moved to obedience by the Spirit. God, my prayer for every student, every man and woman in this room is that we would live lives fully surrendered to you, that we would know the joy that comes from trusting you with every area of our life. I pray that we'd be sensitive to conviction this week, that we would know in our bodies, we'd know in our mind, we'd know in our heart when we've taken back a key from you, either unintentionally or on purpose, God, that we would be convicted and in that moment we would repent and we would surrender again. And for each one of us, that would just become a regular rhythm of life, surrendering everything to you and then receiving the good things that you desire to give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.